The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him and make our home with him. Those who do not love me do not keep my words, and my word is not my own. It is the word of the one who sent me. I have said these things to you while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. Peace I bequeath to you, my own peace I give you, a peace the world cannot give. This is my gift to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and shall return. If you loved me, you would have been glad to know that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. This is an exciting time for the church, in my opinion. It's an exciting time because we are taking strides in Eastertide, this wonderful, fruitful, grace-filled season of Easter, where resurrection is where we have our gaze firmly fixed. And of course, very quickly, Pentecost is dawning on the horizon. We've heard more than one Pope tell us that we're an Easter people. But oftentimes it seems like Easter is maybe the time when we, um, I don't know, hang up our hats. You know, we've, we've gone through the rigor of Lent with very zealous and heroic acts of praying and fasting and almsgiving and service and whatnot. And um, Easter can become a kind of, I don't know, unintentional, unprovided for time where we think, yeah, we did the hard yards and now let's, let's take our rest. And of course, our liturgical life has a rhythm of resting and fasting and, and, and these kinds of things. But I think to sort of drift through Easter would be a great mistake. It'd be a real tragedy. Wouldn't it be good if our Easter could lean upwards as we journey through it, as we anticipate Pentecost, Ascension? A question I often find myself asking the faithful and myself is how many Easter's deep are you? It's irrelevant in a sense how many have come and gone. You know, I'm 30, so I've probably been to 30 Easter's if I went since I was born, which I did. Uh, Not that I remember all of them. But, but that's beside the point. The, the point is, how deeply have I penetrated the mystery of Easter? How much deeper am I into that mystery this year than last year? And the year before that. And for that matter, how many Pentecosts deep are we? How many Christmases deep are we? Because our faith is not the kind of thing that can be glanced once and then we think, yeah, I've been there, done that, already, already seen it. It's already expired, you know, I've seen the fullness of it. If that were the case, we'd attend one Mass, we'd receive Eucharist once, and we would never come back here. But on the contrary, we come again and again to the feast, because the mysteries of our faith are what we're experiencing. Just think of some of these mysteries, and we hear them mentioned throughout the Mass. The mystery of faith, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of suffering, the mystery of redemption, Baptism, which grafts us into the mystical body of our Lord. Confirmation, which strengthens that mysterious presence of the Holy Spirit in and amongst us. 
the mystery of the Eucharist, which the church dares to call the source and summit of the whole Christian life. These are not small statements to be taken lightly. These are grand declarations. So we're not only Easter people, but we're people of the divine mysteries. We're people tremendously privileged with this. And I think the point of the mystery is that we would be enveloped and really consumed by them. Now, of all these mysteries, I suppose we could assert that the greatest mystery, the one where all others intersect, the one where all others sort of guide attention, in a sense, is the mystery of salvation itself. Salvation comes from the Latin salvus. It means to be uninjured or to be in good health or to be safe. It's really a very beautiful word, but it's probably not a word we hear very often anymore. And if we do hear it, we probably don't hear it with that kind of beauty. It seems a bit jarring when we hear it in the, in the modern vocabulary. But I think if our faith does not lead to salvation, that is the healing of injury, if it doesn't provide for good health in mind, body, heart, soul, communion, world, if it doesn't allow us to be cradled in the infinite safety of our God's loving hands, then what exactly is our faith concerned with, if not these things? So it's Easter. And throughout this season, as you've surely noticed, we've been looking at two books, the book of Acts and the book of Revelation or Apocalypse. These two books couldn't be more different in their genre. One is a kind of little... Uh, history of the early church's missionary steps as it started to proclaim the, mission, the message in the world. And the other is a mystical vision that John has uh, with this angel guiding him. But both are squarely focused on the mystery of salvation for us, albeit from different angles. As we said, the book of Acts sketches the, the initial steps of mission for the church, and it presents some beautiful sermons. You know, um, Whenever Peter or Paul or Barnabas or Stephen or one of these characters stands up and proclaims the message to the crowd, and sometimes thousands are converted in one, in one go, um, they're beautiful short sermons and they're worth sort of running our eyes over again. Alongside this, though, are their travels and also their discourses and at times their disputes. They would argue, not in a bad way, but they'd argue because they're trying to get to the truth about these things. And today's reading is one such occasion. And what are they arguing about? You guessed it. The mystery of salvation. The argument we hear is really something like this. They're trying to finish the phrase, unless X, you cannot be saved. Whatever exactly X is, whether it's circumcision or baptism or what. But unless that, you cannot be saved. This is the problem. And I think if we're ready to admit it, we probably all have these kinds of axioms in the back of our minds because we all want uh, the, the, the mercy in its fullness that God provides. We can hear in the public things like, look, as long as you're a good person, as long as you don't intentionally hurt anyone, as long as you treat everyone with respect and compassion, surely you're bound for heaven, surely. Well, while there's clearly a, an implicit truth in this, there's a few problems. One is, what do we even mean when we say good person or compassion? You know, think of the political sphere. Words like mercy and compassion and dignity, they're used very differently between two neighboring parties. 
So it's not necessarily self-evident what we mean when we lean on these, these things we trust in. As we've heard in the scripture, even Jesus asked the man who approached him, why do you call me good? And be merciful like your father is merciful. So not just any mercy, divine mercy that comes from above. Mercy that is perfect. The other problem, I think, is really, as we hear in today's readings, it's simply not what the scriptures present to us themselves. Rather, there is a certain, we might call it an economy of signs and symbols. You know, signs and symbols play a part in a community of faith making sense of their faith to themselves and to each other. Uh, and these signs are things like circumcision or the witness of a person's life, whether they're Jewish, Christian, or a person of goodwill, as we say. In this particular dispute, it becomes apparent that the Christian communities in that region are receiving these contrary messages which had no authority behind them. They had no reason to be out uh, being spread. And so like we see in the church today, the, the elders, the authorities, and all the people would gather and they'd reach an agreement in the spirit and they would uh, make a kind of declaration so they say something to the effect of, our beloved elders, those that we know, the apostles really, whose lives are dedicated to God, say this, no food sacrificed to idols and no fornication, or in, in one translation it says, no illicit marriages. In other words, stop putting things that are offensive into your body and stop committing your bodies to that which is offensive. And I think this is very, very interesting. It's a very interesting essential that they nail down. It says a few things straight away. Firstly, it tells me that the Christian faith does not dichotomize body and spirit. It doesn't actually separate them out as sometimes uh, we're tempted to do. Sometimes we get a sense that the body doesn't matter for us spiritual people because only the spirit is eternal and the spirit is who I really am. And I'm not really my body. I just have a body. Um, well, this is, this is not the Christian conception of the human person. Why do we think Jesus appeared and ate fish with his body and said, touch my wounds, Thomas, and said to Mary Magdalene, don't cling to me. I haven't yet ascended bodily to the Father. Why does the church have such a fixed and maybe seemingly narrow understanding of Christian burial? There are things that we should and should not do with the body of our deceased loved ones. Can I invite us, if any of these are in our minds, to, to really replace them with what the church uh, gives us? It's not that we are a body with a soul or a soul with a body. The church says we are a composite of body and soul. The two are sort of intermingled. Yes, at death, my soul will be separated from my body, but in the resurrection which is what we are celebrating in this season. In the resurrection, our souls will animate our bodies once again. We will sing and dance and embrace each other bodily in heaven. How? I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. But this is the Christian faith. And so we have good reason to have hope in it, to have joy in it, and to await it. And we see it in the Gospels. We see it in the Feast of the Ascension, which is next Sunday. Pay attention to the beautiful gospel we'll hear. We see it in the assumption of the patroness of this church, Our Lady, the Immaculate Virgin, um, assumed body and soul into, into heaven. And we see it in the Eucharist, of course. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. Take, eat. 
receive. So we see it really everywhere if we have the eyes to see it. And that brings me to the second point. If our bodies matter, and clearly they do, if our bodies matter, then what we are, quote-unquote, consuming and what we are wedding ourselves to, what we're sort of binding ourselves to, really and symbolically, matters. It matters because it speaks volumes uh, as to, I guess, where we want to be going and who we want to be becoming. The early community is saying very clearly and with authority and with the Holy Spirit, you are not to consume or wed yourself to just anything because, in fact, we were made for union with Christ. Remember those words of St. Paul to the Romans. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Yes, our faith is one which leads to our consummation, our fulfillment in Christ, who we call the eternal bridegroom of every soul. We're all made to be wedded, if you like, to him, to be consumed into him. If anything compromises this union, the church old and new says, get rid of it and come to know and gaze with your entire being on God in Christ. Cyprian of Alexandria, he coined a phrase in the third century, and it can be a jarring phrase because it sounds so cold and um, you know, unflinching. He says, outside the church, there is no salvation. Very, very stark kind of cutting phrase. It can jar the modern mind in a world that is so multicultural, that's so rich in uh, philosophy and way of life and interest. But we might say that it works at several layers at once. The church itself is to a mystery. So we might say, unless one assents to Christ, drawing them up into his mystical body, unless one leans into that thing they're being pulled into, because Christ is constantly drawing all of us by any means and by all means. Unless one assents to that drawing where healing and safety and the fullness of life are to be found, things that we assert are exclusively Christ's to give, then how else do we suppose they will find those things? We hope and we pray that all of us give way to Christ drawing us in. Uh, in whatever ways he seems to do so. It is our faith that Christ has some exclusive, something exclusive to give, and as members of his body, we too become then stewards, as terrible as that responsibility might seem. We become stewards of Christ's privilege, the privilege of who and what Christ is for us. We become missionaries of that very thing. Wherever we go, our God walks with us, slowly making himself known, and providing for all our needs in this world and for our journey into eternity. Even as we walk from wherever it is we come, we say, let all the nations praise you. We come from a scattered people to the gathered unity of that holy city on Mount Zion. So finally, here again, that glorious scene that we heard in the apocalypse. The holy city is coming down from God a city pure gold, so pure it's like polished glass with its 12 gates and 12 thrones and 12 foundations. It's a place that's sort of thoroughly Israelite and thoroughly apostolic. Um, 
into the very bedrock of that building is the, the history of ancient Israel and, and Christendom. The church visible matters. The bodily, fleshy community of us Christians here and throughout time matters. Their very DNA and geography is kind of swept up into the eternal story of God's salvation. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It matters as we gather here right now to break bread. And it matters in the fullness of time when we stand face to face with God beyond the parameters of time and space. So friends, as we await the ascension of our Lord and the promised descent of his Holy Spirit, and not for the first time, let us each and all set our gaze all the more fiercely on him. Let's prepare to receive and to be received by him. And let's be wholly wedded, if you like, to him in this very moment with all our minds, bodies, hearts, and souls. Let all we have and all we are give praise to him.